Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about sex after sexual assault. My name is Emily Mitchell, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today, I have Jorge Valladares. Jorge is a professor of psychology at Valencia College and teaches general psychology developmental psychology, and human sexuality. He has master's degrees in general psychology and clinical mental health counseling. Jorge was also a Rollins College social justice pre-practicum intern with the VSC in 2019. Jorge, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I also have returning Alexa Andino. Alexa is our therapy intern here at the VSC. She will be graduating with her master's in clinical mental health counseling in December. Alexa will like to continue working with sexual abuse survivors and believes sex after sexual assault should be talked about more often. Alexa hopes to educate more survivors about embracing your own sex life after an assault and how to move towards healing. Alexa, thanks for returning to to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here again. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you both. I think it's a really important one and honestly one that I haven't thought of before. So I'm really excited to have it. And as a brief introduction on this podcast, as people know, we talk a lot about the effects of trauma, uh, the effect that trauma and sexual assault can have on survivors, which may include physical, psychological, and social impacts among others. So what we're looking to explore in this episode is sex after sexual assault. So with that in mind, Alexa, I wanted to kind of start off first. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to work with clients who have survived sexual assault? Yes, I can. Um, I've met many people in my life who have been sexually assaulted, and I noticed one common theme within all these stories, and that theme was secrecy. Um, I believe sexual assault is not talked about enough, and I felt that I needed to advocate for survivors of sexual assault who do not have their voice yet. Many people believe that after a sexual assault happens, it is over with and that victim can move on, but that is never the case. Uh, Many victims of sexual assault suffer from the trauma they experience, and this can manifest in many dimensions in that person's life, um, with sex just being one of them and sex not even being talked about 
in our society, but especially not being talked about after a sexual assault happens. So my passion grew to help victims who have survived one of the most traumatic experiences they can go through, which is sexual assault. Um, my job as a therapist is to install hope in them that growth and change is possible. Wonderful. Beautifully said. And thank you so much for sharing that. Jorge, I wanted to ask if you can give a brief description of the components of your course on human sexuality. Sure, I can. And, and I, I think before I do that, though, I think one of the things that's really important, I, I get a lot of a lot of questions about this. Well, you know, what's that class about? And one of the one of the things I've, I've started to do, and I do this at the beginning of every, cra- of every class, is really emphasize the values of the course. This is, you know, th- there are some really, there's some really tough content to, to, to go through in that class with the group. Everyone arrives at the class with different experiences, different ideas, different beliefs about sex and sexuality. And one of the things I like, I like to do right at the top is establish some values for the course. So one of the things that's really important for students to know when they come in is um, we use something called um, the 13 Principles of Peace and Justice. Um, it's created by the, the um, Valencia College's Peace and Justice Institute, and it's just the way that you interact with each other. And one of the things that's really important in those principles is that all voices have value. It recognizes that people are arriving with different experiences and different ideas and different beliefs. So I like to do that early. I like to talk about the fact that I'm really taking a rights-based approach to comprehensive sexuality education. Um, and so that's a really important thing. And I go through a couple of different principles and really high in there is about the right um, uh, to be free from abuse and violence and non-consensual sexual activity. So that's really right up, up at the top along with um, gender diversity, along with the right of, of um, having sex and using sex as a, as a part of our personal wellness. So those things happen really early in the course, distinguishing, you know, what is healthy sex versus, you know, coercive sex and things like that. And so um, then we can go into topics like, you know, the history and perspectives and research on sexuality, sexual anatomy, sexual response, um, gender, gender issues, gender diversity. Um, We talk about human development a lot. So sexuality through the lifespan. Trauma plays a big role in that. If, if you can understand, you know, uh, human development, then you can understand how trauma might affect an individual differently at different points of their life. Um, so we talk about some of that as well. We talk about love and communication and intimacy also, which is kind of the topic of, of our talk today. So it's a really broad, really interesting course. And it, it never it's never the same, you know, depending on what group of people you have. Um, depending on what the experiences and attitudes and ideas are. Um, it, it's, it's a unique experience each semester. I've had a really great time with the course. Sounds like a wonderful course and uh, really broad too, which is really exciting. Are there any misconceptions about human sexuality in general as a course that you wanted to break down before? Oh, goodness. There's so, well, well, the, the, the idea of misconception, um, would imply that there's a right answer, you know? And so I, 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 people come in with different ideas about, and and I'm, and I openly share where I'm coming from, 
um, what, you know, the way the messages that I got growing up and what that has meant for me in my life. So I'm honest about that. We have uh, texts and research that we, we draw from as well. And hopefully we arrive at some new place by the end of the semester. Whether or not I'm clearing misconceptions, I don't know. I hope so. Are there myths and facts about rape, for example? Yes, th there are. And do some people come in with myths that are guiding their ideas about rape? Absolutely. I, do I think it's helpful when I introduce research that provides evidence that looks a little bit different? Yeah, I, th I think I like it when that happens. And, and sometimes that shifts the thinking of the students in the class. At least that's what I hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I wish yeah, I welcome. could take your class. <laughs> <laughs> you can. Oh, okay. Maybe I will. <laughs> and well, actually, one of the things I do in this, I'm really supported in this class by community partners. And uh, in addition to me uh, working with victim services in the past, I've also had Victim Services Center come into my class and we've done this each semester. I'm also supported by Planned Parenthood comes into my course. Um, so I, I've got lots of community partners that come in. I'm not the sole source of education. Q Latinx has been great for us also. Um, so I'm supported by those organizations and listeners. I recommend you support those organizations as well. Awesome. I think that it's a really diverse class. Very important. So Alexa, I wanted to ask you, what are some common themes to how people approach sex after a sexual assault that you would like to address? So I do have a few common themes that I notice within a lot of clients. The most common theme being that you hear about hypersexuality or compulsive sexual behavior. So some survivors of sexual assault may have the feeling to take back control of their own bodies, and they may do this by participating in many compulsive sex acts. Um, I would like to express that whatever we do with our bodies is our choice, but I do want to express the importance of protection through condoms when survivors do choose to experience sex again. The second theme I see is when a survivor dissociates during sex. So dissociation is not feeling connected to your own body, and someone does this by checking out. They might even have this kind of out-of-body experience where they are watching themselves having sex, but not do not feel connected in their bodies at that time. Um, dissociation is a learned behavior that happens naturally when we experience a traumatic event, but it is not okay to continue it after the traumatic event because it can slow down the recovery process. So if you as a viewer notice you do this during sex, I would definitely consult with your therapist about this because it can definitely be helped. Um, the other thing that I do see with sexual assault survivors is opposite of hypersexuality, which is complete avoidance. So some survivors might be scared to experience anything sexual because of their abuse. They might choose to avoid sex because it makes them feel safer. But the issue with that is that the survivor does not feel in control of their sexuality and they might feel powerless when it comes to sex. Um, I also like to just express as well that some survivors become confused about their sexual orientation as a result of sexual assault. Um, some people might have this thought that they say to themselves that they must be gay because they were molested by a male. Um, one thing I like to remind my clients is that sex orientation is made up of you and not others. So when a perpetrator, for example, molests you, that is a reflection on his sexual orientation if he identifies as male and not yours. So I always like to express that with my clients because I do see that is a common theme, especially with male clients that I have seen before in the past. 
All really good points. And what I'm hearing is that just like other effects and how other impacts, they're all individual. And so not everyone's going to react to trauma the same way. Not everyone's going to approach sex after a sexual assault the same way. So I really appreciate you breaking down all um, the common themes that we see. Oh, I wanted to add to that, too, um, that you, you made some really great points about um, how some of this um, how some of this can be unhealthy and also interfere with healing. Right. You know, um, this is a tricky thing thinking about, like, how do I continue a, a sexual life? How do I con con continue to grow sexually um, when I've had this traumatic event? How do I separate the two? There's a, a lot of behavior also that faces that that's stigmatizing as well. Um, a lot of the things that you talked about, there are a lot of myths around that stuff, too. So, you know, these ideas about um, someone who, who does choose same sex re sex relationships do so because of uh, traumatic sexual past or something like that. You know, that's that's a myth that gets floated out there. It's a stigmatizing myth. There's another stigma around certain types of sexual behavior. So there, there's some belief that, oh, because I practice, you know, let's take, you know, our, our BDSM community, for example, there, there's, there's a stigma around that, that, that in some way is unhealthy sexual behavior. And it's the result of a, like a sexual assault or something like that, which is a myth. You know, it's something that certainly we deal with in the class, but something that that we should know about. I mean, there, there is definitely, there are some characteristics of unhealthy be, uh, sexual behavior. Um, I would strongly recommend seeing a counselor like yourself, seeing a professional um, that knows how to look at some of these behaviors, because some of them really, there are a lot of myths uh, that surround uh, sexual behavior and often are interpreted as like the result of a, a traumatic sexual past. Definitely. All great points. And actually, that leads me to my other question, Jorge, which is, you know, does your course delve into sexual assault at all? Ve yeah, very much so. There, um, so one of the things that happens early on in the classes is talking about what is consensual and non-consensual sexual behavior. That it remains ever present. You know, as, as we're going through all of the content in the class, I'm always kind of checking, you know, in whether or not this is, you know, what we're talking about, how, how does consent play a role in what we're talking about? And actually, I, I've already mentioned it. One of our other community partners, The Woodshed, comes in. Um, they, they are a BDSM club in Orlando. They come in and talk a little bit about what members do and how they distinguish um, BDSM from uh, non-consensual sex, you know, and, and th their whole talk is about consent. So even when we're not talking about sexual assault and rape, we are, you know, it, 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 it's just it's permeated through all of the topics in the class. And then we spend a lot of time looking at, at sexual assault directly, um, differentiating between types um, and acts and the impact at different ages and stages. We talk about wartime rape. We talk about um, the rape, rape from acquaintances and, and stranger rape. And so we look very carefully, very closely at the topic of, uh, of rape and sexual assault and try to distinguish it very clearly from he healthy sexual behavior, healthy sexual development. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you're talking about consent. Um, it would just naturally come up, bringing up non-consensual um, acts such as sexual assault. Um, I wanted to throw back at you, Alexa. So when counseling someone, what specific things do you emphasize 
for a victim of sexual assault who is wanting to explore sexual relationships? I would emphasize to being patient and compassionate with yourself. You know, it's definitely such a big moment for you to regain power of your own body and your own sex life, especially for a childhood sexual abuse victim, because most likely their first sexual activity was their abuse. So to take control of having your first conceptual experience with sex is very important. Um, I always suggest to my clients, you know, exploring taking control of your own body, you know, through masturbation, if that's something that you feel comfortable with, you know, getting to really understand and know your own body, because that's a person that you feel safe and trusted with. And then to also educate yourself, you know, on your body and what are different ways that you can feel in touch with yourself and explore sex with yourself. I believe you know, learning about your own body and how it works and experiences pleasure can be a good step in exploring sexual relationships. I think the relationship with yourself is the first step most survivors can do to feel empowered. But of course, there's other ways that you can do it with other people. But that could take a lot of trust. And that could take, you know, some time to form those relationships where you do feel safe with. And how how wonderful it can be too when you have um, a, su- a supporting and, and trusting partner. You know, if, the, if, the, if we're talking about a partnered relationship and partnered sex, um, um, what a great opportunity that could be for a couple in counseling too. So I think Alexa, you'll also see maybe couples, you know, um, uh, I imagine in your future. And you know, what, what a special thing it would be to help a couple really achieve a, a, a satisfactory intimate relationship when there's been sexual assault um, for one or both. You know, in the future, or even working with clients and couples, I do think, you know, sex is something that people just think is normal, that we should all be sexual beings. And sometimes it's difficult when a couple has that issue that their sex life isn't how it should be, like in the movies or how you hear about it. So being able to really, you know, go through this as a couple can make you even become stronger. So I definitely think, you know, therapy is the way to go with, you know, being able to work on that with your partner and instilling that trust and safety as well. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I want to add something from another qualification I have. I've been with my wife. Uh, my wife was my girlfriend when I was 13 years old. And so we we've actually been together through like developmental stages. And this idea of a sex life, that's that's constantly being negotiated and renegotiated. And it, it, you know, it requires conversation and trust and openness. And there are often barriers of our, you know, that we, we have from our personal experiences outside of the relationship. Um, and I, I think it could be really, really healing for someone when you have a supportive partner that is patient and willing to listen, willing to take them, their time um, and have and, and willing to take the time that it takes to build trust. Definitely. And it's always a good reminder for everyone listening that the Victim Service Center also supports and is able to provide services for secondary survivors or victims. Those are those people who are the loved ones of the ones who went through the trauma or the sexual assault. So I definitely want to plug that in, too. Um, Jorge, I wanted to ask you, can you describe the connection between psychological and physical reactions to to uh sexual trauma sure sure that's um that's a big question that's it's a um it's a big question because it can be so different um for for each of us how we might experience um 
a traumatic event, period. You know, um, Alexa described some really interesting symptoms before. She talked a little bit about dissociation, which is kind of a psychological system, uh, symptom. And, um, you know, I'll say that you, you're if we're looking at this from an evolutionary standpoint, your brain is better designed for keeping you safe than it is for keeping you happy. And so a lot of the mechanisms that it's developed have been developed to keep you safe. So, you know, when 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 you hear someone talk about dissociative symptoms or compulsive behavior that seems harmful on the surface, if if you dig a little bit deeper, you recognize that it's not um, it's not completely unfounded. It, there's 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 good reasons why some of those things happen um, from a psychological standpoint. And, and I, I'm setting aside the biological piece for just a moment from a psychological standpoint. The way that might appear to us in terms of dissociative symptoms, Alexa was talking about that out of body experience, uh, depersonalization, right? Um, this, oh, this is not happening to me right now. This is ha I'm, I'm seeing this happen to somebody else. Um, you could have complete dissociation, which is like being cut off. And very often people think, okay, um, so, you know, I, I, I recognize this person is a victim of sexual assault. That must mean that they have post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's not always true. It doesn't, it doesn't always just stop there. You know, dissociative disorders are things that, that often result from severe sexual trauma. Um, and a lot of it begins with some of these, these symptoms, this dissociation, derealization, depersonalization. Um, and a lot of that comes from our, our body's response to the, to, to the trauma, to a traumatic, a highly stressful event. Um, another thing that can happen on a, on a uh, we're still looking at kind of psych psychological things, it, it can also depend on, on the event and the meaning that's given to the event of the rape. Was this an acquaintance, for example? Was it a family member? Was it someone that I already had a trusting relationship with that was then the perpetrator, that was then my abuser? You can imagine what that might do to our thoughts about trust and love and, and, and relationships. Um, so, it, you know, if you think about like acquaintance rape, you know, it, this is someone in the, it, it wasn't the danger from somewhere out there. It was the danger from right in here, right inside these walls. And so you can almost imagine what would happen into an individual who experiences that level of betrayal um, and experiences that that level of trauma. And, and on a biological level, it it is really a remarkable, explosive thing that occurs um, when we experience something so traumatic. I mean, this is. You know, if you think about sexual assault and rape, this is this is something that's so harmful to us um, that what it does is that very often it will set off um, uh, it'll set off a, a stress reaction. Some of you recognize this as fight, flight and freeze. And essentially what's happening first, you have kind of a hormonal response that takes place that's intended to increase your energy um, if if you have to fight or fly. And again, this isn't true for everybody but it you know the hormones that are often secreted are intended to increase energy suppress pain um which which is a major component and that can produce an affect that people sometimes interpret as compliance you know as as um as going along as consent in some cases it, it, it can appear um, you, you also have opioids that can be released into the bloodstream as well. And so that, that would explain some of the confusion that might occur 
around this. So you have this uh, hormones managing mood, managing pain, managing energy. And often what will happen is that that will interfere with the process of encoding memory. And this can be a, this can be problematic as well, because a, a lot of times in, in, you know, when you think about a sexual assault, if law enforcement is called, if it's reported in some way, it becomes difficult to kind of handle the reporting of it because memory is 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 so impaired um, in the case of this stress response. So you have this flooding of hormones. Um, it's impairing memory encoding and consolidation. Um, and and um, our our memory uh, encoding and consolidation are very sensitive to our hormonal levels. Emotional memory is really complex, really difficult for our brain to organize. And what will happen very often when you have this very high stress uh, response, you have this fractured kind of memory. And so rather than, you know, what, for example, what you're having right now is you're listening to this, you may be organizing some of this information. Maybe you're sitting in your car, you're sitting in your office. Um, and if this isn't a charge, if this isn't charging emotions for you, if it isn't creating emotions for you, your, your brain is probably having a pretty easy time of organizing what's happening right now. However, if we increase your stress levels, it becomes more difficult for your brain to organize what's happening in this moment. And so a, a lot of times with these dissociative kind of symptoms, you also have memory symptoms. So if you look at like the classification of dissociative disorders, you'll see um, impaired memory or fractured memory is an important piece of, of dissociation. So and, and there's, you know, some other stuff. If we look at like the larger brain structures, we know that um, the amygdala plays a major role um, in, in, in trauma. We have high activation of the amygdala. The hippocampus, which uh, is responsible for for store, for consolidation of memory, um, can be affected by the amount of these hormones that are in the bloodstream um, at the moment. Another thing that can happen is that rather than um, the the increased energy and the abil ability to fight uh, or fly, you might have that freeze response. So for some of us, they, they call this tonic immobility. It is literally a paralysis. And, it, and it's something that can often happen. And this is one of the things that become really confusing um, is that for some of us, when we have this really high stress response, um, and there's been a lot of research around this, if you ask someone when they're not stressed what they, were, what they would do if they were being sexually assaulted, um, they would say things like, oh, I would fight, I would kick, I would run, I would do this, I would do that. But what we're talking about here are autonomic responses. We're talking about things that we don't have conscious, goal-directed control over. Um, for example, you probably remember this game from when you were a kid. Let's see who can hold their breath the longest, right? So that, you know, so we hold our breath um, and we try and we try and we try, but at some point our body is going to take over and take a breath. So we're talking about responses at that level, you know, at the autonomic level, something we don't have control over. And so that freeze response is something that can happen in a sexual assault, assault and, is, and is very commonly misinterpreted for consent. All really, really good points. Thank you for breaking that down uh, beautifully there um, on the well. effects of trauma. Um, Alexa, I wanted to ask you, do you find survivors have more primary physical damage like tearing or bruising 
or do you find they are more likely to develop secondary damage such as dyspareunia or painful sex from uh, overactive pelvic floor muscles, erectile dysfunction, or other physical manifestations? Um, after a sexual assault, there could be physical damage to the area that was penetrated by the perpetrator, but that might not always be the case. And although not every survivor experiences sexual difficulties after assault, there are common documented problems such as low desire for sex, difficulty with arousal, problems with orgasm, and sexual pain. Um, these are the secondary damage manifestations you were talking about. And it's important to talk to your doctor if you are experiencing any of these difficulties. Um, somatic, somatization is the development of physical responses to abuse. And to talk briefly about somatization is that our body keeps memories. And it is common that survivors of sexual abuse will also keep the trauma in their physical body where this can manifest in pelvic floor tension, tightening of the glutes or thighs, or many other physical conditions that are known um, to cause sexual dysfunction. So it's important to understand that sexual dysfunction is not the result of sexual abuse and that anyone can develop a sexual dysfunction without any abuse history. There are many sexual dysfunctions and we could be here all day talking about them, but it's important to know that if we do experience anything out of the ordinary with sex, to consult a primary care physician or a gynecologist to be physically evaluated before you decide it's something that is mentally wrong. Definitely. That's a, those are such great points. I, you know, and that, that made me think along with, with, you know, kind of like what I was sharing about some of the, um, um, the reactions in the nervous system, along with, with what Alexa was sharing. Um, you know, if you have this traumatic experience, um, well, let me, let me just talk about memory for a moment. Like we, we, a lot of times we, we have this, this idea that memory is, like this perfect video of the things that have come before us. And that's not the function it serves. Again, looking from just a purely evolutionary standpoint, your, our memory is used to keep us alive, right? It's, it's to, to help us recognize friends, family, foes. It's to help us remember what food nourishes us, what things harm us, right? This is the, the function of memory. It, it keeps you going, it keeps you alive. Um, and so, when you're, you know, kind of like you said, Alexa, that the body has a memory, we do. So if, if you know, in, in a sexual assault, if we have that reaction I kind of described, that memory is stored, not, not, not just, you know, the, the, not just the sensory memory for what happened, but also the internal physiological response. And one of the things that can feed these symptoms is, so I'm no, I'm no longer in this threatening situation. I'm, I'm in a consensual intimate relationship, but for some reason, my body is still undergoing these autonomic responses. It learned it in this first event, and now they're being repeated over and over again. So th there is a part of this that's not rational. It, 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 you know, it, it, it's not, you know, I might recognize that this person in front of me doesn't, loves me and doesn't want to harm me. And, but I can't control my autonomic responses. They, they take over and they're doing things that make it difficult, difficult to control. And so, and, and that's, and for us, we, we see that as, as symptoms um, that Alexa described. Definitely. All really good points, Jorge. I also wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the socio-cultural factors that play into sexuality and what impact might those factors play in healing post-assault? 
Gosh, there, there, there's so much of, of our, of our sexuality that is, is culturally defined. Um, one of the things, you know, one, one of the reasons I love working with victim service center, and I, I tell this, this story often, um, that I, I, I didn't realize how much my upbringing contributed to my, my ideas about coupling and, and relationships and sex and things like that. Um, and, and it took me a while to be able to see it from other perspectives and, and my perspective continues to shift. Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I grew up in the kind of household where, you know, like when we'd have a party, you know, all the ants would come over and, you know, as I was getting a little bit older, they thought I was adorable and cute and they'd say, you know, do you have a girlfriend? And then they would ask, well, how many, you know? And, and maybe that was cute then, but that was sending me messages about sexuality and, 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 and about my sexuality particularly. And so these little events, these little messages do ultimately craft some idea about sex and sexuality. And what we've seen um, in, in our, and I, I just, I'll just talk about our American culture is that, um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a Hispanic guy from Brooklyn and you don't, you know, for, you can edit that, you can bleep this out later, but you don't with a guy from Brooklyn, right? That, and that tells you something that it tells, that sends you a message of entitlement of, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what's mine. Um, and that translates into ideas about sex and sexuality. J during the, during this pandemic, just the other day, I, uh, I, I wanted to watch old films that I had, that I had liked. That I, that I had liked when I was younger, and I watched the film Rocky. You familiar with the film Rocky? You're both, you both, you're a little young, but you know, yes. Rocky is, <laughs> so um, Rocky won, which was I think like 1977, the year that I was born. There's a scene in Rocky, Adrian is, you know, his famous, his famous love. If you watch the scene of their first date, Rocky is actually not letting her leave his apartment. And that is, watch it again. I, I recommend you go back and watch it. Um, but if you look at it, and that ended up being a romantic experience, watch it through today's lens and you'll see, you'll get a sense for this, how, how the messaging might contribute uh, to ideas about sex and, and, and sexuality. Um, so I think culture plays a major role in our ideas about this. And if, if we scale that up if you think about like healing from sexual assault another thing that happens tends to happen culturally is how we treat survivors of sexual assault um in some cultures um your family will disown you uh as a survivor of sexual assault um what and you know what i i think people will hate me for saying something like this but you know, I feel like one of the crimes of my generation, I was a teenager in the 90s, and one of the big regrets that I have is that I didn't pay enough attention to what was happening in Rwanda at the time. Um, you know, these uh, mass rapes, um, this raping and mutilation of, of mostly women um, and girls. Um, and in a lot, you know, we could say the same thing about Darfur in Sudan, Congo, you know, more recently. And for a lot of these victims, Saudi Arabia recently as well, um, 
for a lot of these victims, it it wasn't traumatic enough that they were brutally assaulted. But for many of them returning home, if it was known that they were victims of rape, many of them were disavowed, disowned, kicked out of their homes. Um, and so the trauma very often continues. I'm naming other countries of the world, but that happens here too. Um, in some circles, we have um, we have a tendency to blame victims. We have a tendency to you know to say that it was wanted or deserved. Um, and so, what the way that we, if if a a person who survives a sexual assault is in an environment that is not supportive of them, that engages in victim blaming, they're more likely to have difficulty with surviving the trauma and then engaging in healthy behaviors after the traumatic event because it's a continuing it's continuing trauma um and this is why it's so so important for us to 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 talk about this to have uh comprehensive sexuality education to do things actually to have victim service center to have celebrations like denim day um because we know that if if as a supportive culture we're helping the people to get back on their feet that we're, that, that we're not victim blaming, that we're supporting healing. Um, that ultimately improves outcomes for survivors. Definitely, definitely. I think victim blaming plays a huge, huge role in, um, in the healing process. And we can all do our, our best to be more mindful before we respond to when someone discloses. Um, and we could probably have a whole podcast about that too. Um, but yeah, definitely great points. Alexa, I wanted to check with you. What team members, healthcare or otherwise, do you bring in for clients who would benefit from physical or spiritual healing in addition to mental healing? It is extremely important to have a team of clinicians for each sexual abuse client who is having concerns with sex. You know, it's important for the counselor to be sex positive, but the counselor is not going to have the adequate training to help a client with a sexual dysfunction if there is one. So it's important to look for a therapist who identifies as a certified sex therapist. These are going to be practitioners who have taken extra amount of training and education to specialize in sex therapy. And then along with, you know, having a sex therapist as well, it's important to have a team made up of a gynecologist or a primary health provider just to check out if anything physically is wrong there. A physical therapist, a client might be participating in pelvic floor physical therapy for any vaginismus they might have or any other dysfunctions. And then a urologist if needed. And if the client is spiritual, they can also have a spiritual healer on their team as well. But I think having a well-connected team that is integrative medicine, I think is going to be the best solution for clients who um, are coming in for any kind of sexual dysfunctions or anything that they would like to work on for their sexual healing journey. Yeah, absolutely. All really, really important. Um, and things that I didn't think about before. Um, so I really appreciate that. Jorge, you know, more research and literature is coming out about sexual health, such as The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, do you have any specific books or articles on the subject that you utilize in your courses? So I, lo I love that work that, um, by Vanderkolk. Um, that, that is fundamental reading for, for anyone who's interested um, in trauma, period. I mean, um, you know, sexual assault, it, it, you know, it can inform 
your awareness of the impact of sexual assault. If you have family members that undergo post-traumatic stress, um, you know, your vet, the veterans in your family or your, your circle of friends, you could learn a lot about what that experience is like by, by reading that text. So I think that's a fundamental text. Um, I, I, I'm cheating a little bit because I have an assignment in the class where um, students get to choose uh, something that they, 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 they get to educate us on, on, on something as a group. Um, and one group did, did this uh, project exactly, which was, in, and they came up with it, I didn't propose it, intimacy after you know, sexual assault. And, and they gave us these really, these really great uh, resources. Um, they, they showed us these two TED Talks that I, they showed us snippets from them, but I, I love these. These, are, these help to inform me a lot. It really helped me kind of understand this issue just a, just a little bit more. Um, one is by Kat Smith. It's actually called Intimacy After, After Trauma. And there's another really impactful one by T, T Ortiz. Um, her first name is just uh, T, Exploring Sexuality After Trauma. Those had a huge impact on me. Um, there's one that I, I recommend. Actually, this was when I did training. And if you're not a volunteer for a victim service center, you should definitely look into it. It's a, it's a really great experience. One of the things they require you to do to become a volunteer, there's a pretty comprehensive training that you have to do. And I, I remember that, you know, going through that training, it helped me to think about the relationship between sexual assault survivors and law enforcement and, and how, um, how those two things are involved. And there was a source in there in one of the work, uh, one of the works that pointed to a, this, this other training uh, by the Department of Justice. And I'm going to get you the information here. Um, it was called The Neurobiology of Sexual Assault. Implications for Law Enforcement, Prosecution, and Victim Advocacy. And the speaker was Rebecca Campbell. And I, I, it's a long one, um, but really, really fruitful for anyone who's thinking about advocacy um, or law enforcement. I mean, it, it, it was it's a really powerful talk. Um, there's also a really good, um, like if that's a little too deep for you and you want something um, that will give you a, a really good understanding so I described some biology for you and I, I described some psychology for you. If you're interested in more of like the psychological impact, the stuff that we can kind of see in, in survivors, there's this really great 2013 article by Mason and Lodrick are the names. Psycholo Psychological Consequences of Sexual Assault, um, 2013. Um, the, these, are, these are really good, I think, consumable bits of research um, that would help. It, you, don't, you don't need any kind of training to really take advantage of these. Um, if you're just getting started in, in, in trying to understand sexual assault and life after sexual assault, these are, I think, four good places to begin. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I'll be sure to put in those into the comment section here. So if people want to take a look and have some, you know, summer reading and, and things that would be really helpful for people, especially who want to become more of that advocate that you were mentioning, Jorge. Absolutely. Alexa, in your experience as a counselor, do you find the path back to having healthy sexual relationships is linear? And what are some things that may cause a regression of healing? Of course, you know, everyone's going to be different, you know, especially discussing about sex, you know, everyone's sex life is going to be different. But in most cases, it's definitely not going to be linear. 
it's going to be common to have blocks in an individual's sexual healing journey after an assault. Just like what we say about therapy, our healing is not linear and life isn't linear in general. You know, so some things that may cause regressions are, you know, forming new relationships. If the if the client or the survivor hasn't been in a relationship since the sexual assault, that can be something that can be an obstacle for them. Any medical diagnosis, such as what we discussed before in the past, any exposure to sexual abuse again, um, flashbacks that they might have when it comes to their abuse or when they are having sex again, having flashbacks of being abused again or that dissociation that we talked about and then confusion with sexuality. And there's so much more that can be a regression, you know, but for me, I feel like sex is something that's not talked about in our society and sex after a sexual assault is even less discussed. So this is why I think this podcast topic is important to give people information about sex after sexual assault and how practitioners need to become more comfortable talking about sex with their clients to help them navigate through this sexual healing journey. Because a lot of clients come in and they're scared to talk about sex when we really need to be more sex positive and ask them questions more about their sex life and how they're doing after a sexual assault because it does you know, affect so much different parts of their relationships, either with themselves or with other people. I think that's such a great point. And it, it sheds light on why really, you know, reclaiming intimacy um, can be so difficult. If you think about like the feelings of guilt that that may uh, arise as a result of a sexual assault, and then later going through treatment and having a setback, those those feelings of guilt could be compounding, right? You know, it, it could start a cycle that's hard, hard to stop and get out of. And that's why trained clinicians are so important because they're, they, they understand how to manage all of those dimensions of, of, of recovering from trauma, um, and, and finding, finding a healthy, uh, a healthy sexual life. Definitely. And I wanted to ask you, Jorge, as a final question, does Valencia offer any additional courses or lecture series that address the psychological impact of surviving a sexual assault? I don't think anybody does enough, but, but yes, Valencia does a few things. Um, uh, Victim Service Center is a great partner to Valencia generally as well. And um, I know that, that there are, so at Valencia, we have something called skill shops, which are, are work, free workshops for students. And they don't, you know, we prefer that they sign up, but they don't, you know, you could really walk into one of these things as a student. They're free. They're going on all year long. Um, and even as we're transitioning to, we're in the middle of a period of being strictly online. Even then, these skill shops are widely available. Um, as soon as a pamphlet is available, I'm, I'll make sure that you get one for the for the next academic year. Um, but they vary in topics. And so, um Victim Service Center will come in and do the uh, sexual assault awareness and prevention or the healthy dating relationships. Um, we have some internal programs uh, as well. Um, a Be the One campaign. We call it Be the One is the name of the, ca the campaign. And it focuses on a couple of, of different things, including like bystander intervention, consent, things like that. Um, actually, bystander intervention could be another really good podcast in case you needed some ideas. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. We we have some we have some student run uh, events as well. We have a team of students that we call the wellness ambassadors. Um, that so they work for the college, their uh, work study, and and they they will hold some of these skill shops as well. 
Um, and um, the the one that I think they're doing this year is called recognizing uh, the recognizing the signs of emotional abuse. Um, and then there's another one that's uh, it's called relationships ignoring all the red flags. So um, there's a, a couple of different things that 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 we that we try to do at the college. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I love that Valencia has those skill shops. It's a great opportunity to um, have community members come in and, and teach really awesome topics. I, I, I'm lucky that, you know, the VSC is able to present and then we can see all the different, um, presenters as well. Um, seems like definitely something to take advantage of if you're a student at Valencia for sure. So thank you for sharing that Jorge. Uh, you're welcome. Alexa, as a final question to you, for someone who hasn't sought help for a past sexual assault, what are some signs that indicate their sexual relationships may benefit from seeking the help of an organization like the Victim Service Center? Some signs that a potential individual can look for is that if they are experiencing any of the following, such as pain during sex, fear of having sex, dissociating during sex, flashbacks of abuse, inability to feel safe during sex, not being able to trust their partner or having difficulties communicating with their partner about sex. And I'm sure there's many more signs as well, but it's important to know at VSC that you'll, you do not need to know all the signs right away. Just calling our office and saying you want services is the first step in seeking help. And hopefully with the help of our advocates or therapists, they can help a client target those signs more clearly and work towards your healing journey, but just know that you don't have to have everything all together before you come to VSC. We're very open with talking to clients right after the sexual assault and working patiently with each client at their own speed. Can I add something to that too? Um, for, for the supporters of, of, of the survivor, um, be patient. Um, you know, uh, sexual trauma, sexual assault, you know, one of the things that that is a really important feature of this is loss of control, you know, and and part of the goal of healing is regaining control. And and very often, I, you know, like I think about myself, I know I would have a hard time. I would have an impossible time uh, being the supporter of someone that had this, especially if it was a family member. I'm 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 a parent of adolescent daughters. And so, you know, to think wh how I might react, you know, if if one of them went through something so terrible, so traumatic. Um, but I would encourage you know, supporters and family members, be patient, you know, and help your loved one regain control, regain their trust in the world. I think that's a wonderful place to kind of sign off. But before we do, is there anything else that you, Jorge, or you, Alexa, would like to add before we say goodbye here? Yeah, I really appreciate, Jorge, you talking about the partners or even the family members. I think that's extremely important for viewers to know that that is going to take some time and to have compassionate for, you know, sexual assault survivors as well. And, you know, I also wanted to make another note as well. I know that we are talking about sex after a sexual assault. And I want to make sure that our viewers know that not all humans are sexual beings. And there's going to be an umbrella term for people who do not have interest in sex. And that is someone who is ace or asexual. So, it's important to know that someone who is asexual doesn't have sex because they're afraid or that they're choosing to be celibate. It's important to know that sexual abuse doesn't cause asexuality. So if you're listening to us and you're thinking, I'm not even interested in having sex, 
you know, does it mean that that's because I was abused? That's not going to be the answer. You know, it's going to be that you were born that way, just like as if someone's born with being heterosexual, pan or homosexual. Asexuality is just one of those other identities that we're born with. So knowing that it's not a choice. And if you might think that you are asexual, you can definitely look up more information. The Trevor Project website is known for LGBTQ plus positive information. So I just definitely wanted to add that as well, because we might have some viewers who do not resonate with sex being a part of their lives. That is such a great point. I kind of I kind of wish we had said that earlier, um, just as we were talking about this. I, you know, I know we started talking about, um, you know, people who are in relationships or interested mm-hmm. in having relationships. But, I, you know, I think, you know, kind of like you said, too, I, I think, you know, even if you, you you don't have an interest in pursuing a romantic relationship with another person. If you are a victim of sexual assault, it can still be helpful to seek counseling mm-hmm. um, because the, the trauma can have negative effects on other parts of your life as well. Definitely. I definitely agree with that. But yeah, I definitely think it is important you know, to understand, you know, whatever, wherever your sex life is, you know, there doesn't have to be one, there could be one. But yeah, I definitely, you know, emphasize, you know, just going to a counselor and be able to get that help because, you know, sexual assault is going to affect you in so many different ways than just sex. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. So I wanted to just thank the viewer for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, just like Alexa and Jorge have mentioned, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Alexa and Jorge, for joining me today. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had a great time again.